Welcome to episode 42 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, this time released on a Tuesday, except in Nebraska, where it's available only on Wednesdays, or in any jurisdiction where podcasts are prohibited by law, where it will be available on Saturday afternoon if you're on the gold plan, and on Sunday morning if you're not. As always, nothing in this podcast should be taken to limit or exclude your liability for death or personal injury. See Luther Abel for details. On today's show, I'll be talking to Douglas Brunt about his fascinating book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel, which, in a peculiar twist, is about the mysterious case of Rudolf Diesel. First, though, I'm going to do a quick Q and A. Question. With the Rugby World Cup starting this week, what are your thoughts on the sport? Do you still enjoy it now that you've become a football fan? What do you think of the tension within the sport between its traditions and the need to grow and make the sport popular and profitable? Rugby has also had a class dynamic in both the UK and US, where it was mostly enjoyed and played by middle-class school students, colleges in the US. Is it possible to make it more egalitarian like soccer without watering down the purity of the game? So I have a strange relationship with rugby because it was the main sport that I played at school starting at six years old, and I was thrown directly into the deep end in a somewhat regrettable way. I can remember it as if it were yesterday. It was November, December. It was absolutely freezing outside. I was in shorts, rugby boots and this completely inadequate against the cold reversible rugby shirt one side of which was white one side of which was purple i was quite tall for a six-year-old but i was also very thin and more than anything else i can remember being cold my legs were cold and my hands were cold and my ears especially were cold in a way that hurt. I wanted to go inside. But I couldn't. So we all lined up. Basically every boy in the school lined up. And we were told that today we'd be playing rugby. I'd never played rugby before. To the questioner's point about class, my parents weren't from the sort of families that watched rugby on TV or had a team to support So I didn't know the rules or how to do anything. Which made it less than ideal that seemingly at random, I think at random, I heard my name being called by the sports teacher. Charles, come here. So I did. And unfortunately, so did this absolutely huge kid, William, he was called. 
who was in the top year at school. So he has to have been either 12 or 13. Looking at him, I could tell instinctively that he knew how to play rugby. The teacher said, today we'll be learning how to tackle. Charles, tackle William. So I remember looking at the teacher with a, you can't actually be serious, is there a hidden camera here sort of way, but his expression made it clear that he was, in fact, serious. So I tried, with tried being the operative word. It was ridiculous. I mean, there was absolutely no way that I could tackle William, or even move him half an inch, which became pretty obvious after the sixth or seventh time I tried. Eventually, I was relieved of my duty and told to go to a different area of the pitch to see if I could catch the ball or run around or count to six or something. So... Yeah, rugby and I started off on a weird footing, and I never quite got into it after that. My dad and my uncle were fanatical about soccer, so I became fanatical about soccer too. Rugby was a thing I played reluctantly at school during school hours. Soccer was what I did for fun during recess or at the weekends at the park. I watched rugby when the World Cup was on, but it always felt like an exception or a novelty or a once-a-year thing rather than something I look forward to or thought about in my free time. And this is actually one of the reasons that I'm surprised at how much I got into football because I never really got in to rugby, which, although it's different, is probably the closest analogue. And now I think I likely won't ever get into rugby because... Well, I'm really into football. Also, of course, I'm now much further away from the game of rugby than I already was in the UK. Nobody in America asks me randomly if I like rugby. Everyone asks if I like football or baseball or hockey or basketball. As for the prospects of increasing the popularity of the game, I don't think that the class element is what holds it back nowadays, although I do agree that it's there still, I just think that it's not as entertaining as the alternatives, and there's no way of making it as entertaining as the alternatives, and so it's not ever going to rise to their level. Sports are pretty egalitarian, that's one of the things I like about them. In sports, the best does tend to rise to the top. The reason that football is the most popular game in the U.S. is that football is the most exciting game in the U.S. In the U.K., soccer is just a more engaging game than rugby is, in my view. Now, Today, it looks like a foregone conclusion that all of the money and the TV coverage and the celebrity would gravitate towards soccer. But I don't think that was foreordained. I think it evolved that way for a reason. If rugby were capable of developing a mass audience, I think it would have. I'm just not sure that it is, and I'm not sure there's anything that could be done to the game other than turning it into football that would change that. But I accept I am, given my early experiences with it, 
probably the wrong person to ask. Perhaps I should forward this to William to see what he thinks. My guest today is Douglas Brunt, a New York Times bestselling author and most recently the author of a book titled The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel, Genius, Power and Deception on the Eve of World War One, a book that I absolutely loved. This was sent to me by Doug's publisher and look, I get a lot of books sent to me. And a lot of them I ignore, but this one I picked up on a whim. I think I like the cover. And then I just didn't put it down until it was finished. Really, this book could have been written explicitly for me. It's about technology and Victorian and Edwardian history and the Gilded Age and World War I and the era of great ships. And then at the end, it has a little tinge of Sherlock Holmes and I loved it and so I'm thrilled to have Doug on the show to talk about it and its subject. Doug, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Charlie, thank you for having me. I'm a fan of your work and an honor to be here. Thank you. Mutual Appreciation Society. So <laughs> this book is about, as the title suggests, the mysterious case of Rudolf Diesel. Who was Rudolf Diesel, and why did you decide to write about him? Well, the, the story of how I got into the book is a personal one, and the book is really just born of my curiosity around this experience, which is that I bought a boat about eight years ago, and I, it's a, it was a slightly larger boat, and I was fixing it up, and the guy said, hey, you should repower this with diesel engines. So at that time, I was like most people and did not know anything about diesel or that diesel was any different kind of engine at all. So he launched into these reasons why, which is that 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines, none from diesel, that diesel does not emit fumes, that the fuel is completely stable. You can take a lit match and drop it into a barrel of diesel fuel and nothing will happen. No, no noxious fumes to make you nauseous and the efficiency is three to four X. So on your 200 gallon fuel tank, you'll go four times as far. So I repowered to diesel. And a couple years later, I was in between novels. I, I've mostly in the past written fiction, and I was coming up with ideas for the next book. And I came across this interesting list about Rudolf Diesel. And I wondered, well, maybe that's connected to these diesel engines I've just gotten. And, and of course, it was. So that then launched me down this five-year rabbit hole and archives around Europe and America and things putting this book together. So Diesel, who he was as the man, was the inventor of the diesel engine, which he introduced to the world in 1897. He was from a Germanic family, but his parents had moved to Paris, France in 1850. He was born in Paris in 1858. And this was, of course, back before Germany even existed as the state that we've come to know in the 20th century, which didn't begin until the Franco-Prussian War concluded in 1871. So during that time of the Franco-Prussian War, when they were in Paris and these Germanic states and kingdoms and tribes, uh, he was from Bavaria, which was one of them, fought France. They were expelled from Paris, so they left Paris penniless. So he really was sort of this refugee fleeing Paris with his family and went to London and lived in tenement housing in London and saw the worst guts of the Industrial Revolution there in London in the 1870s 
And, you know, as you, as you see early in the book, he was given a, a lifeline by a distant relative in Germany, traveled there and got his education and soon was inhabiting the revered circles of German engineers. It's one of these amazing feelings you get when you read this book that we should know more about this guy. That you shouldn't be changing out the engines in your boat, then subsequently reading a list and wondering if the two are related. That he should be mentioned in the same breath as a, a Thomas Edison. Why isn't he? Well, for reasons you discover in the book, the history of the man has been paved over. And that's, that's something we may talk about in a bit as, as to why. But I, I had been mistakenly spelling diesel with a lowercase d. You don't spell the, your Con Edison bill with a lowercase e for Edison or Ford with a lowercase f. And one of the things that was personal for, for me, I got over to Paris and I found his childhood home, which is in the third arrondissement. And there's a picture of this on my website at douglasbrunt.com. There's some great old photos from archives. And, but there's also one that's a new photo of my trip to Paris where I found his home. And there's a little plaque on the wall well above head height. So it's not even in your eye sight. And the wall itself is covered with graffiti and stickers. And there's this sort of abandoned, sorry little plaque that just says, this is the birth site of Rudolph Diesel. And like you and I, and many people, we don't know that there's this man behind the diesel engine. But even today, more than 120 years after he introduced that engine, it powers the global economy. If you think about a piece of fruit grown in a tropical region, all the farm equipment, all the heavy machinery to grow that fruit is diesel-powered. It then gets put on a truck, anything larger than a passenger car, diesel-powered. The truck drives to port where a crane, diesel-powered, puts it onto a ship. 100% of cargo ships around the world, diesel-powered. goes across the seas, it's unloaded onto a truck, onto a train, all trains, diesel-powered. goes to some warehouse, you know, the, the energy plant nearby, most likely diesel-powered. And the engine operates in fundamentally the same manner, the same concept. Diesel, it powers the global economy. Why is it not powering the car in my garage? You said anything bigger than a car. Is there a particular reason for that? Yeah, about 30, 40% of cars around the world are diesel powered. And largely that's because of fuel efficiency. It's a much more efficient engine. It's also a heavier engine. And the metal casting that diesel used even back in the 1890s and turn of the century was much heavier. It was much more expensive to get these fittings cast in the proper way because it's a high-pressure engine. The way it explodes the fuel is through pressure, 900 to 1,000 PSI, pounds per square inch. And so it's that heat. It's like when you take a bicycle pump and you pump up the air in your tire. As you have a sudden compression down in the air, the, the high pressure of the air creates heat. That's the concept of the diesel engine. It's very, very simple in that way. It creates very high pressure, and then that pressure creates heat, and that heat explodes the fuel. And so it doesn't use a spark or anything like that. But that as a result of heavier casting of the metal, and it's a much heavier engine. So it works well on ships and trains. But if you look at the early Benz cars, it was like a half horsepower engine on what looked like a three-wheel bike and so a heavy engine just wouldn't work in those kinds of scenarios. All right, well, we look at these people, and we tend to think about the commercial application of their products. And the book is fascinating on this and how he licensed it around the world and gradually improved it and improved it. And as you say, it has now become a, an economic powerhouse, literally 
and figuratively. But one of the most fascinating things about the book is actually not the commercial application, but is the military application. And I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the backdrop against which the diesel engine is being developed, which was this nascent naval rivalry between what became Germany and the British Empire, and to some extent the United States, and also a European consolidation of power in which he found himself torn apart. Right. So as you mentioned, this turn of the century period in the decades leading up to World War I was a period of heightened nationalism, heightened militarism. And in particular, there was an Anglo-German naval arms race. On the side of Germany, there was Kaiser Wilhelm II, the emperor of Germany. And for Britain, it was primarily Winston Churchill, who was for some years prior to World War I, the first Lord of the Admiralty, so really responsible for the preparedness of the Royal Navy. And it was a battleship craze. There was the dreadnought that the, that the British introduced, and the Germans were trying to respond. They, they wanted to grow their empire. They had the most powerful land army, but they also wanted colonies around the world in the way that, you know, in fairness, Britain also had, and France and Italy and others had. Yeah. And they felt that in order to feed their growing empire. They needed natural resources in an in a imperial structure. And in order to have that, they felt they needed a powerful navy. But they couldn't compete. You know, the, the British had been building capital ships for years, and they had all the infrastructure in place to build them quickly and beautifully, and, and the Germans just couldn't catch up with that. But then they thought, well, maybe we can have this powerful U-boat fleet. And by the 1910s, the navies of every major power around Europe, as well as America, was getting into the submarine game. And diesel was the only engine that could power the submarine. It's certainly a steam engine with a furnace to burn coal and heat a vat of water to provide steam. That was not going to work for a submarine or U-boat. And the gasoline and kerosene engines would not work either, you know, for reasons of low torque in the engine, as well as fires and fumes. You had to have diesel but also for the range. So he was suddenly a very sought-after person for military application. And it's interesting, there's this term called technical sweetness. And it refers to the feeling of euphoria and excitement that, a, that an engineer or a scientist can get when they advance their technology. And that feeling of excitement overpowers any concerns they might have about the application of that advancing technology. Oppenheimer had it with the bomb a number of engineers, software engineers, have it now these days with AI, artificial intelligence. And diesel had it a bit as well with the application of the diesel engine for the submarine because it became really the first mass stealth weapon. We have rifles that can shoot you from a mile away, but suddenly the submarine, which concurrently happened with the advent of the first really functional torpedoes, was a stealth weapon with terrible effect. So that was, that was really the great irony of his life because he designed the engine with the hopes that it would power rural economies and small businesses. His father had been a leather worker and a bookbinder, and he wanted to create a small, compact power source for decentralized economies. And the irony is it powered the economies of big business and urbanized central centralized economies as well as weapons of war. And he watched this irony play out in his own lifetime, in his middle age. What did he believe in? I mean, that is a little bit of a different question than the one you just answered, which is what did he think the engine was for? What did he think of how it was used? 
what was his worldview? He came from a place that became increasingly militaristic as time went by and really <laughs> stayed that way for a long time. Was he a nationalist? Was he a universalist? Was he a romantic? What was his worldview? Well, he, you know, he was a bit of a romantic, as you can see from, I know you've, you've been through it, uh, some of his letters to his wife. He, he had a very poetic side. And at that time, and even today, engineers felt this dual responsibility to be both a engineer as well as a social theorist to think about the applications of their labor. He did come from a militaristic background, Germany, also a hardworking, industrious background. And he believed in capitalism, as you, as you can see in the way that he licensed the engine and was you know, looking to make a buck. His life was really bookended by European wars. And he recognized the value of a strong military as a deterrent. And this is, this, these are things that he's been quoted as saying in newspapers and other materials. So he wasn't opposed to having a military. He was opposed to social Darwinism, which was a popular area of thought in which, you know, social Darwinism, as you know, was saying it's not only morally okay, it's an obligation for one society to conquer another because we were all Darwinistic and the best must win. And that's a natural thing. And if you're the more powerful country, you should invade the next country and take them over and make them more like you. He was not a fan of that. He was a, a, a peaceful person in that sense. And he also felt that he was universalist in the sense that he felt he was more a citizen of the world rather than a German and part of that comes from his background. He, his parents were from Augsburg, Germany, but he was born in Paris, France. He lived for a time in London, England, and he traveled to America on, on a few occasions and loved America. He just, you know, he just sort of had this uh, international identity in a sense. He was, he was not a nationalist in that sense. What did he like about America? He came twice, once in 1904, once in 1912. In 1904, he was fairly appalled by some of the infrastructure in cities he visited. And he was also blown away by the use of timber and wood in all the houses. So, you know, one of the things we kind of forget about is in these early towns, these early Western towns, is they were terrified of fire. You know, everything made of wood. The railroads, as opposed to Great Britain that had a ton of coal and all the railroads ran on coal, over here in America, we're chopping down trees and most of our rails ran on wood. They burned wood in the, in the trains to provide the steam power. But he loved the ability to start from scratch and as opposed to Europe where, you know, all of the roadways are built on the ancient Roman pathways here in America, we're starting over, build the road wherever you want it, wherever it makes the most sense, the work ethic and the meritocracy. And, and one thing he said, he also loved the humble nature of our most powerful people and brilliant thinkers and that that humility begets more humility and I think we've sort of developed a form of a class society here. You know, you go to Harvard or Yale and a Yale lawyer marries another Yale lawyer and that sort of thing. That does happen. But compared to what he left in turn of the century Europe, we were not so focused on class in the way that many parts of Europe were. He met Thomas Edison in America. In 1912, he had a, a fantastic visit to America, where he, he saw everyone from Westinghouse to, you know, the people from the Baldwin Railroads to the U.S. Navy, and also to Edison, who was the other main inventor of that time. And so he went to Orange, New Jersey, to Edison's home. There's some great photographs in the book and on my website of their meeting. And one interesting thing that Diesel observed was that Edison 
was the great inventor of applications that used power, the phonograph and, and other things. Whereas Diesel was the great inventor of something that produced power. And I think he, he kind of liked that comparison. They didn't exactly get along. And there's some hilarious, uh, it's a really a hilarious scene of the book. I only have access to Diesel's observations of the meeting. He came back and wrote about it. And it's sort of written about in the family biography that his son published. In fairness, I don't have Edison's uh, version of the meeting. But Diesel's is very, very funny. It's an odd question, perhaps. But do you like him? Sometimes people write biographies or narratives about people and they're in great depth and they love the story, but they're indifferent. Do you like Rudolf Diesel? Very much. And a concern of mine through the process was not to like him too much and to try to keep things down the middle and to be fair. But I know that I became enamored with him and so did my family. We'd walk around the house and we'd tell stories about Diesel. I'd read passages out of his diaries. I don't speak German, but I contacted my friend from years and years ago who runs the English department of my old high school who put me in touch with the German professor who translated these amazing diaries and letters and documents out of archives deep in Germany. And I'd share these passages, letters to his family and his wife. He became a character around the household that I really miss. One of the things that I was astonished by in this book is how incredibly inefficient steam engines were. And I suppose I never had cause to think about it. Because when you look at what limited footage we have of enormous ships like the Titanic, and you look at the size of those craft, you think, well, obviously those engines must be very powerful if they can move that across the Atlantic Ocean. But the efficiency was remarkably low. How much more efficient were diesel's engines than what came before them? More than 10x. If if you go back all the way to the James Watt days, which was really the first industrial application of steam technology, I mean, the ancient Egyptians used a form of steam technology to move heavy stone doors and things like that. But the first real industrial application was around the time of James Watt. And, you know, there's a line in the book saying it's about as old as America. So it was the 1770s. And back in that time, the metal casting technology was very poor. And it began to advance quickly. But back in the 1770s, they would seal pipes with rope and leather. And just imagine how much pressure and heat is lost in that way. And then fast forward a bit, certainly much better. But even looking at those large ships, I I use the example of the movie Titanic. And if you think back to that famous scene when the camera goes down to the belly of the ship, and there are dozens and dozens of sweating guys with no shirts on shoveling coal into these huge orange fiery furnaces burning tons of coal, all to heat a giant vat of water. I mean, literally, it's the same principle as a pot on a stove. They're just boiling water that then generates steam that then creates the pressure to move the engine. And the efficiency is not only in how much coal you shovel in there. I mean, tons and tons of coal. You need whole rooms on the ship to feed these engines. Then they still have to island hop to get more coal. But upwards of 200, even 300 people would be these coal stokers, they've got to live on the ship somewhere and eat food on the ship somewhere. And the amount of the ship that's given over to just powering it is enormous. It it also has a chimney apparatus that gets all the smoke and smog out of there, whereas the diesel engine is a very compact engine relatively and just simply draws the liquid fuel down from a tank. You don't need 200 men there shoveling coal around. Tell me about the process by which he designed and 
brought this to fruition. He has the idea theoretically, right? He is irritated by the waste that you've just described, and he thinks that he has a better way of doing it. Now, a much less efficient way of doing it than would later come along, but a much more efficient one than existed before. He has the idea, he writes it down, then what happens? If we're making a montage here in a movie, how, how long uh, a period of time are we talking <laughs> and what's in the montage? Well, he's in university in Munich in the very early 1880s, 1881. And at that time, he's looking at the history of combustion engines, both external and internal. To put some numbers next to your prior question, in the James Watt days, you know, if you look at the amount of energy you can get out of a unit of fuel, it was like 2%. And that's 1770s. And then by the time you're in the 18, say 1880, when, when diesel is in university, it's more like 6 to 8%. What he ultimately achieved was closer to high 30s. So a multiple, multiple better, and certainly over what James Watt was doing. So he studied under this professor, Carl von Lind, who was a pioneer in refrigeration. And he developed an enormous company. The, the Lind name is still out there even today. He was a, a refrigeration pioneer. So back then they'd have to like, you know, when Adolphus Bush, who actually is a major character in the book because he takes the North American license for diesel engines, he would use it to pump water in his breweries and power refrigeration and, and also built diesels for the U.S. Navy submarine fleet. But back in those days, you know, before refrigeration, these breweries were finding caves, which is part of the reason why Anheuser-Busch is founded where it was. They had access to water and caves for cold storage, and you'd chip ice out, and ice would come in by ships. And So Diesel initially worked in the refrigeration business for Lind, even after he graduated. So he was always in the thermodynamics business, and people, people would joke that, well, how's this refrigeration guy going to build a heat engine? And he'd say, well, anything, you know, this is the sort of nerd yeah. comeback is anything warmer than absolute zero, which is, I, I can't even remember now, it's like negative 270-something degrees. Anything warmer than that is heat. So he'd been working with gases like ammonia and benzene and methane and different fuels around refrigeration, and he was always, as a kind of side project, thinking about a more efficient combustion engine. One of the interesting things about this book is we forget that at the turn of the century, it was not a settled fact that petroleum and gasoline would be the the fuel for the 20th century. He was not thinking gasoline or petroleum. He was, he was looking at other things. He won the 1900 Paris World's Fair on a diesel engine running nut oil. He could run it on peanut oil or vegetable oil. And that's what he advocated. You know, every country, he would say, has, has farmers. We can grow our own fuel. We don't need to be beholden to certain areas of the world that have petroleum in the ground, and we don't need to go fight wars over that. And we also forget that in 1905, New York City had a taxi fleet of several hundred cars that were all electric. And there was a charging station for electric cars on Broadway in Times Square in 1905. So now we think about Elon Musk and these newfangled electric cars. Well, that was out there. And it was not a settled fact that we'd have gasoline automobiles. That's one of the reasons why diesel was such a threat to the established order and, and people like Rockefeller and Standard Oil. So he creates this engine. He finally gets it working. How long does that take? He's working on it through the 1880s while he's in Paris working for Lind. In 1891, he moves to Berlin, always working on this as sort of a, a side thing. Eventually, Lind realizes, you know what? And Lind was his fan and supporter and advocate and helped him get in touch with the right 
partners to, to build a beta test of the, of the engine. By 1892, he's got a patent in. So he's out of university early 1880s. Ten years later, he's got a patent while he'd been working for Linden Refrigeration, but kind of working on this on the side. And he's committed. He's all in. He gets a partnership with M.A., which is Messinenfabrique Augsburg, and Heinrich Buzz, who coincidentally had also helped Lind develop his refrigeration technology. And from 1892 to 1897, he's working in the lab building the test engine, which he then releases successfully in 1897. And then he licenses it. This interests me. He doesn't found the Worldwide Diesel Corporation, have 100% control over everything, decide which products he will sell, and then ship them around the world as ordered from, presumably, Germany, he sells licenses to various people, but one per country. Yes, it goes by national territory, the exclusive rights to manufacture and market in your national territory. And that was a common licensing model of the time. It's what Lind had done with his refrigeration technology as well. And this is where some of the cast of characters gets very interesting. You know, in, in America, North America, as I mentioned, it was Adolphus Bush who had the, the exclusive rights the Nobel family related to Alfred Nobel of dynamite fame, but Alfred had two older brothers who at that time were more successful and more famous. They had essentially founded the Russian oil industry as well as had an arms manufacturing and engine manufacturing company called Bra Nobel, which means brothers Nobel. So these fascinating characters from around the world who are innovators and on the cutting edge of technology and breakthroughs step forward to take the diesel license and apply it in different ways. And this, at least for a time, makes him extremely rich. Yes, yes. Each, uh, you know, I think Bush Bush paid the most in that period. And this is all sort of 1897 through 99. He runs around and does a flurry of these licenses around the world. You know, Italy, the uh, Fiat had it. And yeah, Bush, I think, paid a a million dollars at the time, which was a lot. And then... This is why the book is called The Mysterious Case, rather than just the case or the life and times or the genius of (laughs) Rudolf Diesel. And then one day, on the eve of World War I, in 1913, a year or so after the sinking of the Titanic, he just disappears. He disappears. And, and as you say, he, he was at the peak of his fame. A, a scientific journal had just come out that diesel was basically going to be running all the railways, which was a massive thing at that time. The ships in 1912, the first merchant marine vessel that could travel the world with cargo had come out in diesel. And Churchill had come down to see it and said it was a masterpiece that was going to change the world. He's at the height of his fame. September 29, 1913, he's traveling from Belgium to Great Britain on an overnight passenger ferry crossing the North Sea, and he disappears. He had allegedly dined with his companions that evening, and they were going to meet in the morning. They go to meet in the morning. He's not there. He's not in his stateroom. He doesn't show up for breakfast. They hold the ship at sea and do a search, and all they find are his hat and his coat folded at the stern of the ship by the rail, seeming to mark where he must have gone over. So they put into sea. He's going to Harwich in uh, England. He's co-founder and board director of a new diesel engine manufacturing company in England. Its mission is to build diesels for the Royal Navy submarine fleet. So he's missing headlines everywhere in every city around the world, from New York to Moscow, are on the diesel beat, 
wondering what happened to him. The prevailing theory is suicide. Two other theories emerge. One is that he was murdered by agents of big oil, Rockefeller and Standard Oil, because of the threat he posed to oil and gasoline being used as the, the future fuel for combustion engines. The other theory is Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany had dispatched agents to murder him. So these two theories are explored day after day. They're still looking for the body. They're looking for any trace of him. There's tons of testimony in the, in the newspapers, some from the crew members of the passenger ferry about his whereabouts, all sorts of conflicting things. 11 days after he goes missing, a Dutch vessel reports it's like a, like a port steamer that's meant to sort of monitor coastal ports, reports that they have discovered a corpse floating outside the shelled estuary, sort of the, you know, the eastern side, the continental European side of the North Sea, and that it had, you know, it was wrapped in fine clothing, and they pulled it alongside, but there were heavy waves, so they couldn't keep the body, but they managed to pull four items out of the clothing and then return the body to the water and then came into port with these items they called Rudolf Diesel's son down to the port in the Netherlands, and he identified these items as belonging to his father. So that seemed to sort of settle the matter, although subsequently the newspaper writing is still sort of weird around its coverage of the story. Certain things are sort of mysteriously dropped. And then, of course, World War I happens not too long after, and everything just gets sort of forgotten. So the story really faded away. But none of it made sense. If you looked at the facts leading up to his disappearance, the, the weird actions of people close to him and his own actions, the strange testimonies reported after his disappearance, none of it really made much sense, which has got me what got me going on the whole thing in the first place. So I'm not going to ask you to give away your theory, which you lay out at the end. Those who want to read that must buy the book. But perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on the plausible theories that have been advanced and who would have wanted him dead and what it was at the time that people instinctively believed or disbelieved. The thing with Rockefeller and why he was one of the top names thrown around is by 1900, Rockefeller was already one of, if not the richest man in the world. But Standard Oil through those years, 1870 to 1900, made all its money off kerosene. They were in the illumination business. And the electric light bulb had since come along. Edison and others were developing a terrific version of illumination through the electric light bulb, which was doing to Standard Oil what Standard Oil had done to the whaling business, getting used to burn whale blubber for light. Then kerosene came along. But now the electric light bulb had come along and wiped out Standard Oil's revenue. And so they were hoping for the combustion engine running on gasoline to be the salvation of that company, which was happening. But the world didn't start selling more gasoline than kerosene until 1916. And in the years prior to the turn of the century, gasoline was a nuisance byproduct that they would throw away. But now they had this new application for it. But diesel stood in the way of that. He was saying, no, no, not gasoline. We can run it on vegetable oils, nut oils. We can run it on coal tar. Through the coking process, you can separate coal into coke, coal gas, and tar, and the tar is a great diesel fuel. And many countries that didn't have access to petroleum in the ground certainly had lots of coal, places like Great Britain and, and Germany. So he was a real existential threat to Standard Oil, which was just finding its footing again based, based on gasoline. And then the, the Kaiser Wilhelm piece we explored a bit. He viewed his U-boat submarine fleet as the one way that he could level the playing field with the 
Royal Navy, which was the most powerful. The Royal Navy controlled the seas from the time of Napoleon forward up to this time. And this was Germany's chance at getting some equal footing in sea power, which was his obsession, really. And Diesel threatened that by going over to help the British build their own submarine fleet with diesel engines because he still really needed Rudolph. He was still the main guy. The engine was young enough. You still needed the creator involved to really be assured of success with the engine, especially with the exacting requirements of submarine use. So that really sets the structure of the book. The the thrust of the book is Diesel and his story, but these two prime suspects, as we explore how these three figures converge together in that quarter century prior to World War I, you get a sense of the landscape of what's going on at the time. And of course, there's Churchill, who's the, the counterweight to... In some ways, both Rockefeller and and Wilhelm, because he's certainly the adversary on the Anglo-German naval arms race, but he's also looking for his own sources of fuel. And and Churchill and the British are, in some ways, the real pioneers of prospecting oil out of the Middle East. And, you know, British petroleum is, you know, their initial, initial beginnings were in, you know, what was then called Persia. So how quickly was he forgotten? Was it really a case of his disappearance in 1913, the onset of World War One, and then by 1918, he's gone. Because you, you describe this as a world phenomenon, and the analogy you drew was with Elon Musk. If Elon Musk disappeared tomorrow, it would be all mm-hmm. anyone talked about for a few weeks. He wasn't you know, someone who was only known to those who were interested in manufacturing, but as we started out observing, no one knows who he is now. I do think by 1918, it was on the way. Part of it is that the accepted conclusion at that time for his disappearance and death was suicide, which is a little more tragic and sad and less sensational. It's like, oh, all right, let's move on. So there was that. There were also other people who tried to usurp credit for some of his work. So there was also that. There was also, he, he wasn't the richest man in the world by a long stretch and, and not the p- most powerful man in the world either. So he, he was still convincing much of the world to, a, to adopt this technology, which happened in key areas. It was going to happen in the railroads. As a scientific matter, that was kind of settled. It just hadn't happened as a practical matter yet. The large truck had not yet happened. You know, he still wanted to get it going for the car, but the small passenger cars, it didn't really work there until later. And the first trucks, like Mack truck, didn't really come out to the late 20s or early 30s. And, the, you know, they didn't take over for the railroads until the 50s. It had started in the 20s and 30s, but it wasn't 100% of railroads until more like the 50s, 60s. And same for the ships, you know, so as a practical matter, it had not yet taken off. But as a scientific matter, it was a foregone conclusion. The first ships were already out and were far more successful than a steam technology cargo ship. That's in part, I think, why the name isn't as well known. The other part is the technology wasn't yet understood. There were people who ran even the, the Admiralty who were skeptical about what diesel meant. They're like, they didn't understand the technical differences between one engine and another. It, and even I didn't understand it in 2016 when I got a new boat. I'm like, oh, diesel, is, isn't that just like the same as gas? So I think it was sort of confusing to people like, well, isn't an engine an engine? I don't get it. 
Are you going to write more of this sort of thing or are you going to go back to fiction? Was this a one-off curiosity and informed and expanded by the mysterious part or is this a new direction? It's a new direction. I don't know that I'll ever be able to replicate a story like this. I mean, this is just such a one in a million, one in a billion kind of a stories, you know, where I don't think I'll be so fortunate as to find some mystery and investigation where I can solve it. But I love this time period, this quarter century leading to World War One. I. I used to be more of a World War II fan, the good and evil, the Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars yeah. stuff. But there's so much more nuance to what happened with World War One, And it's also this incredible hinge of history. I sort of think of it as the Downton Abbey, the early seasons, you mm-hmm. know, the world lived differently. Think of how many empires crumbled as a result of World War One, the, the Russian Empire, Ottoman Empire, Austrian Empire, German Empire, people just lived differently. And part of that was industrialization, too. They're already already moving to cities. So it's kind of happening. But World War One was a big hinge point. And there's a story, I, I joke with my editor, that one writer's footnote could be another writer's whole book. Grab onto one little nugget and you think, you know what, I'm going to run with that. And I think in this case, one of my footnotes will be my own next book. I'm going to stay in this quarter century prior to World War One period that's about all I can say at this time, but there is one story that I want to run with. So if listeners want to find out more about him beyond buying the book and looking at your website, are there museums around the world? Is there a particular place that has a collection of his sketches or early engines? Where should they investigate? The two best museums are in Germany. One is the man. It's the, so instead of initially it was Maschinenfabrik Augsburg, it's now man with people who know Diesel engines would know this company, M-A-N, Messinenfabrik Augsburg Nuremberg. And they have a great museum. Most of his personal effects and archives are there. Also, the Deutsches Museum in Germany is very good. And in Paris, you can not only see his old home, but as is discussed in the book a bit, there's a childhood museum favorite of his. And I went there a little more than a year ago. It's a technical museum. It's the oldest museum in Paris. It used to be a, an abbey called St. Martin in the Fields, and it was converted after one of the many French revolutions into a technical museum. And it has the old steam car by Nicolas Cugnot that was invented in the mid-1700s, which was the first steam engine technology car that went like two miles an hour, but was powerful enough to haul cannon and things like that. And it's actually an exhibit that Diesel himself visited when he was eight, nine, and ten years old, and it's still there in this technical museum. All right. Well, the book is The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel, Genius, Power, and Deception on the Eve of World War One by Douglas Brunt. Doug, where can people buy it? When's it out? Publication day is September 19. You can buy it anywhere you get books. It, it, it better be all over the place or my publisher's <laughs> letting me down. All right. all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. A real pleasure. And that's all we've got time for this week, unless you live in Nebraska, in which case it will be all we've got time for this week, tomorrow at about the same time. (sighs) What? See you next week.